10, 21 through 24, and 22, 31 through 32. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except for the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that have seen what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Okay, the second reading is John 17, 1 through 9. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Thank you. Okay, I think that the biggest difficulty we have with with silent prayer is all the noise that goes on in our minds. And even if we try to relax, there are the, the voices and the, and the agendas and the responsibilities and the chores. But uh, what I understand is that it's possible to calm the mind by completely calming the body. And those slow, deep breaths are the way to begin to relax. So let's start there, slow, deep breaths. And let's know that God is here now, that he loves us. That if you need it today, Jesus will touch you. So if you need it, receive this touch. And the Holy Spirit surrounds you and enters you to bring heaven into your heart, to bring us closer to God. Okay, so... Um, all right. So with... Uh, 
today's scripture reading, especially from John 17, it seems like we're going backwards, and indeed we are. Last week we jumped from John 16 to the end of the book because it was Easter Sunday, and uh, that text was such a great uh, text to remember the resurrection of Christ and the aftermath. Um, but today we go back in time and we return to the night that Jesus was arrested, the night before his crucifixion. Fortunately, we have the church calendar uh, to guide us, and not everyone is aware of this, but uh, for centuries, uh, the year, the Christian year, has been divided into various seasons celebrating major events from scripture and church feasts. Um, so, Easter, according to the calendar, is not a day, it's a season. And it will continue until Pentecost. Very good. Um, it pays to be a former Catholic. Or <laughs> of the of the church year is to keep us mindful of those events so it's I think it's really wonderful to be mindful of Easter all through this time uh, the first year that I went to visit the hermitage it was right after it was a first weekend after Easter and we had always made a big deal about about Easter is always exhausting uh, to go through that and the Monday after Easter, when I opened up my Bible to read, I felt this impression of God telling me, do not rip the day off the calendar because Easter isn't over for you. And I thought, well, that's wonderful because with all the work we had to do, we really didn't enjoy Easter like we tried to make it for other people to enjoy. So. That next weekend, I was at the Hermitage, and they were singing all Resurrection and Easter songs. And I mentioned it to my friend, uh, Father Romuald, and he said, oh yes. He said, and we'll continue singing Resurrection songs right up until Pentecost. Mm -hmm. so, so that's what we get to do. That's my excuse for uh, hanging around the cross and the empty tomb for the next couple of weeks. Uh, it, it's fitting to return to to these important events. You know, it's almost like a movie. Sometimes there's a, a flashback to an earlier period. Uh, uh, I always have to explain to, to Barbara, no, it's not happening right now, honey. This is what happened before. But uh, it, it fills in the blanks. It, it gives some explanation for what's going on now. We get to do this flashback. Uh, we have the resurrection. We already know this. And that's really how John was written with that in mind, that he stands uh, some time after the resurrection, he sees so much more with, with his spiritual eyes now than he did at the time of the resurrection. Jesus and his disciples are on their way out of Jerusalem and to the Mount of Olives. Uh, they haven't crossed through the Kidron Valley yet, which separates the two mounts. And he's said to them everything that he has had to say. Now he concludes this final teaching with a prayer. Now, there's too much 
in this prayer to go over in detail. And uh, I have another reason that in a while I'll explain why we don't want to do that anyway. Um, it's like the entire Gospel of John is compressed into this one chapter. But I am going to encourage you, find time to read John 17 on your own and read slowly and reread and reread slowly. You're going to have to take it a bite at a time. There is nothing like this prayer in the Synoptic Gospels. Nothing that compares to it. We know Jesus prayed. In fact, he prayed a lot in Luke's Gospel. Luke has Jesus praying more times than the others. Uh, Matthew and Mark. Um, he prays before his baptism. He prays before he chooses his apostles. He prays at the Transfiguration. And that's not in any other Gospel. Uh, sometimes he prayed for his disciples. He prayed over them before he chose the twelve. And he specifically prayed for Peter, as, as Rich read. Um, and, I, and Rich, when you read that, you read it really well. Because when I heard those words, Jesus telling Simon, I have prayed for you. I thought, how wonderful for Jesus to say, I, I have prayed for you. Because you know God hears him. So, um, once we, we do hear Jesus' prayer, again, Rich read that, when he rejoiced in spirit over the success his disciples had. Um, and he also uh, praises God. He um, prays, or he gives thanks when he feeds the multitude, but... Uh, we don't know what he said, he just gives thanks, and then he gives thanks at the time of the Last Supper, and he does have something to say to the disciples, but it's not really prayer. So, um, even though they tell us that Jesus prayed, they don't give the content of his prayers really, just little snippets maybe. And, uh, and that, even though he taught his disciples to pray, and made suggestions what they should be requesting, when they pray. Pray for laborers because the harvest is great and the laborers are few. Um, pray that you will not enter into temptation and so on. John takes us into this particular prayer of Jesus. In doing so, uh, he takes us deep into Jesus' heart because that's where this prayer begins. He allows us to eavesdrop to hear what Jesus' uh, concerns are in this last hour with his disciples. <coughs> so, in this prayer, there are key themes that were already key themes in the whole story. And so it's not surprising to find that they come back here because Jesus has been talking about them, John's been making comments about them, and now in this prayer that sums it all up, Jesus is, is praying it in. You know what I mean? It's like sometimes we, we talk about things, but we don't pray it in to our lives. And Jesus is praying it into their lives. Uh, now activate it, Lord. It's like his prayer is a catalyst for all he's taught, so now they can begin living it in the Spirit. So what are these key themes? Well, he addresses God as Father. 
Um, he is the Holy Father in verse 11. He's the Righteous Father in verse 25. He makes reference to his hour. Um, the first time this occurs is when he's at that wedding feast in Cana and Mary comes up to him and says, they've run out of wine. We've got a, 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 a social catastrophe going on here. And uh, he says, woman, what business is that of ours? My hour has not yet come. And later on, he'll tell his brothers the same thing when they say, well, if you want to be recognized, you need to get out in front of the public, head to Jerusalem. And he said, well, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me. But in chapter 12, as he's now in Jerusalem for the last time and moving towards the cross, he says, now has the hour of the Son of Man come. And that's what he says here. That's what he begins with this prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Which, by the way, is another key theme of this chapter, is glory. Um, that Jesus glorified the Father, and that um, he asked the Father to glorify him now. And he says, glorify me with that same glory that I had with you before the world was. Which is John's mysticism at play here. This, the way that he understands Jesus in his uh, pre-incarnate existence with the Father. <clears throat> From the beginning of John's Gospel, God's glory is his self-manifestation. It's how God manifested his presence to Israel. Uh, Moses told the people, prepare yourselves because God's going to reveal his glory to you. And when they saw it, they saw this brilliant radiance. And, uh, and there's some pyrotechnics, too, and it freaked them out. So they begged uh, Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. You just go, hear what he's got to tell us, come back, tell us, or keep us safe. Um, but God's glory, I mean, to see God's glory... Is, is to see him revealing himself. Again, the hermitage. Um, I spent a month there in uh, 2005, and I went up there because I wanted God. Now, do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, you've given me the silent treatment long enough. <laughs> I want a lightning bolt, it's not too close. I want a sign. I want a voice. I want an angel. A vision would be nice. I, you know, you have your multiple choice, Lord. Just show up. And um, and of course, it was disappointment day and night, day and night, day and night, until one morning in our scripture reading, the psalmist is is declaring the glory of the Lord, and he says, "The heavens declare the glory of the Lord." And I just felt like God was saying, now, bear that in mind. <laughs> what do you think about the last few sunsets? And I realized, I've been looking at God's glory every day, and I'm just not acknowledging it as such. But I can tell you that there was a transcendent beauty in what I experienced there. The last time I was at the Hermitage, I met this, this uh, couple from Monterey, um, they're a really nice couple. 
I don't have, okay, this, this is not a judgment. It's just like they struck me at first as people that Hermitage would be the last place where you'd meet them. Maybe Cabo, maybe, you know, Monte Carlo. But, but the man said, we just love coming here. This place is so spiritual. See, something transcendent. The glory of God has this, this transcendent quality. And sometimes we experience it in beauty, the pleasure that we feel. And, and sometimes we experience it in the vastness of space, of desert, of ocean. So, this is how God manifests himself to the world through Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus manifested God's glory to the disciples so that to see Jesus was to see the Father. And it's okay if you want to come sit next to your friend. Um, in, re in regard to Jesus' glory, well, first of all, John doesn't include the transfiguration, this moment in Jesus' life where the glory is just intense. But again, he doesn't have to, because he knows that his readers are already familiar with one of the synoptic gospels, at least, and they know about that. Rather than one explosion of glory in a transfiguration, the glory of Jesus is, is coming to the surface all the way through his gospel. Uh, when he turned the water into the wine, his disciples beheld his glory and they believed in him. So, so John sees through the synoptic vision of the cross to something else. In other words, the, the cross of Jesus is portrayed one way, let's say in Mark's gospel. And John sees that. He acknowledges that. There's no question about it. But he sees through it. How does Mark present the cross? Well, it's a place of suffering, uh, of intense suffering. It's, it's darkness over the earth. Uh, Andreas Kostenberg said that in Mark's gospel, the cross is a place of shame, humiliation, and suffering for Jesus. And, and you think about it, the soldiers mocked Jesus. Well, they're Roman soldiers. He's just a criminal to them. But the, the chief priests and elders come to the cross and mock Jesus. Bystanders, just who are passing by, stop to mock Jesus. Even the two thieves crucified next to him mock Jesus. It's a place of humiliation and shame for Jesus. And John, however, Kostenberger says, the cross is the place where Jesus will be glorified. When Jesus talks about his glory, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. And here is going to be a revelation of God's glory. Well, as Kostenberg says, John enlists Isaiah to show that contrary to the world's perspective, the cross was not, in fact, a place of dishonor, humiliation, and shame, 
but instead constituted the location where Jesus was exalted for his willingness to die for the sins of the world as the Lamb of God and obedient Son of the Father. He, he rises to the fulfillment of those prophecies in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 53, as Psalm 22, and in this way glorifies God through his, his obedient self-sacrifice. Another theme in chapter 17 is eternal life. Then there's believing and knowing. Uh, I like this in verse 8 where Jesus says, For I have given them, his disciples, the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They've come to know, and they have believed. There's a difference between knowing and believing. Some of the things we believe, we don't know. God exists in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither dividing the persons nor confounding the substance. Uh, the triune God is a mystery. We, just, we don't know, but we confess that we believe God exists in this way. But they've come to, to know some things, but also to believe. And then you can know things and, not, and still not come to faith in Christ. You can know that he's reliable. You can know that God is trustworthy, but not put your trust in him. Later on, he'll say the same thing about the world, um, that God would work in the disciples in such a way that through them the world would come to believe and to know. So, again, themes from earlier in the gospel that reappear here. The world comes back here as a source of resistance to the disciples and persecution. You know, when you go through John's gospel and you read about the world and Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me before it hated you. Um, if you watch tele televangelist, and don't, just you know, <laughs> uh, protect yourself, uh, your pocketbook. But um, you, you get the idea that the world is culture, uh, corporations, institutions, uh, all kinds of things out there in that wicked society. Um, and society without God just is what it is and, and goes the way that it goes. And that's not the world that Jesus warned his disciples about. It's not the world that persecuted Jesus. The world that persecuted Jesus was the religious system of Israel. In John's Gospel, when he talks about the world, he's generally making reference to the religious institution that was trying to kill him, and threaten the lives of his disciples. So, um, the world comes up again here. And in verse 9, Jesus said, I'm not, praying, I'm not praying for the world. At least not at that point, he wasn't praying for the, the world. Um, he's praying for his disciples. But he does not exclude the world from his prayer. Later on, um, we're going to see that's the end goal. That God would work in the disciples in such a way that the glory of Jesus would be revealed to the world and God would be manifest to the world. God prays, or pardon me, Christ prays for oneness. Uh, and this is beautiful. In verse 21, he says, 
Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world will believe that you have sent me. The glory that I have given, pardon me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you and me, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Is that intense? Yeah. I mean, how could he, how could he say that more forcefully? I mean, it's it's going to be after a while, Dr. Seuss or something, you know, because he just the way he repeats and he just goes back and he says. Well, in this way that we are one, and this way we're one, and this is perfectly one. What do you think Jesus wants? Um, Jesus also covers in this prayer the past. He says, I have, in the past, I have manifested your name. I have given them words, your words. I have guarded them. I have sent them into the world. This is, these are all things that he's done. He covers the present. I am praying for them. I am no longer in the world. I am coming to you, Father. I am not of the world. That present moment's covered, and he also covers the future. Keep them, he prays, in your name. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them, that is, uh, make them holy, which is a process that God's working in our lives, and. And it's wonderful because I grew up believing I had to make myself holy and try as hard as I could, you know, praying every night next to my bed, brushing my teeth, at least once a week. Um, uh, I could not make myself holy. I praise God, uh, Jesus praised God for this. And he prays for those who will come to believe in him that they, um, that they also will become one. He also says, Father, I desire that they be with me where I am, that his disciples would, would join him where he is. A chain is formed from these things in Jesus' prayer, and you can follow the chain. For example, his glory, which he mentions right up front um, in, in verses 1 through 5. The Father shares his glory with the Son. In verse 22, Jesus shares his glory with the disciples. In verse 23, the disciples reflect his glory to the world. The same chain is formed for the Father's name, which is given to Jesus by the Father, Jesus gives it to his disciples, and his disciples take it to the world. God's name is, is not just Yahweh, you know, now I know his name, I can text him uh, or look him up on Facebook. It's not just uh, a label. Name represents the whole person, who that person is. And so, if, if I say, uh, if I bang on your door and I say, open up in the name of the law, now, I'm not saying there's any power in saying law. 
it's all that's represented by the water. So all that, that's represented in the name of God, this is this is what God gives to the Son, the Son gives to the disciples. It's a, it's a name of authority, and it allows them to move around and to represent him with authority. Uh, also, um, Uh, the words, Father gave the words to Jesus, Jesus gave them to the disciples, the disciples taken to the world. And then as the Father sent Jesus into the world, so he sends, Jesus sends the disciples into the world. So Jesus includes in his prayer every link in this chain all the way down to us. All the way down to, to us today. That we are the ones who have heard the message of the apostles, and we have come to believe. And his name has come to us, his glory, his words, and we too are sent into the world. Okay, now that we, we've seen some of the features of this prayer, I have a confession to make. It's not big. It's not, it's not. I would never make a big confession in front of <laughs> Reading this prayer has always been confusing for me. I quickly lose train, the, the train of Jesus' thought. Come on, listen. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. Are you with me? <laughs> okay, so you see what I mean. Now, it's like this through the whole prayer. <clears throat> the prayer jumps around a lot. It, it, plays on these themes, and you see the theme, you think, I know what this is, but then he, he turns a corner and you go, but I didn't think it was that. Or how does that fit together? I can't see the logical connections that Jesus is making in this prayer. And I feel like I have to hold on to too many ideas at once. <coughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like sometimes when you solve a riddle or you solve a math problem, you have to hold it in mind a lot of, of numbers or a, a, a lot of concepts all at once. Reading philosophy is like this. No, it's not. Philosophy is stupid. Um, because they invent words. And they have no idea what they're talking about. Or they misuse words. Anyway, I've not been able to find the structure of this prayer. And I look for structure in Scripture. It's like reading the mumbo-jumbo of a legal document. Said party of the first part here and agrees to the terms of the original conditions and stipulations regarding the party of the second part, which hereby accepts the responsibility for the third party who has not been seen for the last 10 years. Um, that's, that's to me how this prayer reads. It's, um, okay, so. Perhaps we don't have to hold on to the pieces as we read through it and try to <coughs> put them all in this jigsaw puzzle. Perhaps it's not that. Perhaps we don't have to carefully track all the twists and turns in the prayer. 
And if we don't have to, if we don't have to understand how it all comes together or what every single word means, how else can we read it? Technically, Jesus was not talking to his disciples. When Lyndon Johnson was president of the United States, uh, one time, I think it was the, chap the uh, Senate chaplain was saying a prayer over dinner in the White House, and it was out of this long table, and Johnson was at the other end of the table from the chaplain, and then President Johnson, Johnson said, I can't hear you. And the chaplain looked up and said, I wasn't talking to you. It'd <laughs> 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 be hard for a president to get that sometimes. But, um, Jesus wasn't talking to the disciples. This was not another discourse or, or lecture. It was a prayer. He opened his soul and poured out what was in it. And, and all this stuff from previously in the gospel, this was what was in there. It did not have to be organized and neat. It did not have to have a structure. His style was not logical, but emotional. And that's what we feel. You see, if you spend enough time with this prayer, you will catch its depth and its beauty. But I say catch because it's caught rather than taught. It's like a poem you really love that you don't fully understand, but you just love the poem. Or music that you've never heard before and you don't know really what genre it is, but you love the music. We can be this way with this prayer because it's coming from the heart of Jesus. It's just pouring out of him. And so, so it splashes all over the place. So it, 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 it goes everywhere. But isn't that how a lot of our prayers are? And, and we don't worry about that, do we? Um, because we know God can make sense of it. We see the depth and beauty of the prayer, but we also see the depth and beauty of the one who prayed it. And it makes a strong impression on us. And I just think we need to feel that impression, the impression that it makes, so that we're shaped by it. And this is, is what Jesus prays for us, and these are, these are things he wants for us, and it's meant to give formation to our life in him. Just to be clear though, this prayer is a teaching moment for the disciples, only Jesus is not teaching them with lessons but by example, he's illustrating prayer by praying this in front of them, must have made an impression on John for him to remember it and to record it now what is he teaching, well he's teaching them to uh, keep your eye on the goal and, and continue towards it because you've got God's help with you. Keep yourself close to God, all of his resources. Never lose sight of the big picture. And, and the picture that Jesus prays in this prayer is very big. It is worldwide. Before he prayed, John says that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. 
Is that necessary? Does, does John have to tell us Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven? I mean, he could have said, if it had been this way, Jesus folded his hands and bowed his head and closed his eyes. Does it matter? Well, John's not one to waste words. Almost everything that he says has uh, a meaning or purpose. Turning our heads and our line of sight is how we orient ourselves. We have to, we can't just look at one thing to be oriented. We have to have <clears throat> a general view of the, the footprint around us. <clears throat> Turning our heads and our line of sight is how we turn our whole bodies. Um, and if you've never noticed that when you're riding a bicycle, let me warn you before you ride your bicycle next time, that if you're riding a bike and you look somewhere for any length of time, you naturally turn that direction. So some drivers do the same thing. They're looking, oh, look at that. And they don't realize that they're coming into you know, the next lane. We, we pray with our bodies. We do not only pray with our bodies, but we cannot pray without our bodies. This is our embodied spirituality. Posture makes a difference. Now, I don't know if this is so, but I've heard it from psychologists who say that it's so, that if you have good posture, it puts you in a better mood. That if you, you know, sit or stand like you're supposed to, that it improves your attitude about yourself and about your day. Well, of course, you know, people who are positive about their day go into it with their head high and their shoulders back, excited about what's ahead of them. But um, those of us with slumped shoulders, and I hate these gloomy days of overcast, and, um, well, we'll never be as happy as the others. To pray with our whole person is to present our bodies to God, a living sacrifice. What drives us? Sometimes I don't think that we even know. You hate the fact that you lose your temper, and you promise yourself you never, ever, ever lose your temper again, and then you do. I think that, I think that we're drawn by our desires, but we're driven by something else. What drives us? If we drop our guard and let what's deep inside come up, I think that we'll discover a great emptiness down there. Even Christians feel it. The longing for something that isn't there that's never been fulfilled. But the fact is we don't want to face that emptiness deep down inside of us. The need that's never been met. Anthony DeMello says, and when the emptiness surfaces, what do you do? You run away. Turn on the television, turn on the radio, read a book, search for a human company, 
seek entertainment, seek distractions. And so there's a whole big industry built around this to help us keep ourselves distracted and entertained. Well, the more distractions, the more that we are distracted from that emptiness because we, because it's so uncomfortable, it can be sad and painful. It can be bleak and hopeless. But every distraction is also a blockage that prevents the light of the glory of God from reaching deep down into that place of emptiness. And that's what we need is God's light to shine on and enter that place of emptiness. Jesus prayed for us. He is still praying for us. He will be praying for us as long as there is a human person on this earth. Let's, let's feel this prayer and let's be as open as we can to it. Let's, let's sit with our emptiness and the, the pain of it, but open to the light of the glory of God to shine on it. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for me? May God bring to mind for us the fact that Jesus prays for us. He's praying for us today. And the kind of things that he has prayed into our lives. May, they, may this give us confidence that even if to us our prayers seem weak and flimsy, the prayers of Jesus for us are as powerful as the power that created our universe. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah.